0: In October 1998, a University of Wyoming student named Matthew Shepard was brutally pistol-whipped by two men. Before leaving their victim, the men lashed Matthew's bloodied body to a fence post. When the police arrived, they remarked that Matthew looked like a scarecrow, but some also noted the scene looked an awful lot like a crucifixion. Matthew died six days later. As much as anything, the spectacle of Matthew's body on that fence post was striking to many, It was meant to be humiliating, shaming. That was the message of crosses in the Roman Empire too. Crucifixions were intentionally humiliating and deeply shaming. Today on Groundwork, we'll explore this aspect of Jesus' cross. Stay tuned.
1: Welcome to Groundwork where we dig into scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney.
0: And I'm Scott Jose. And Daryl, this is now our third program in a planned seven-part series meditating on different aspects of Jesus' cross and crucifixion. So this is a set of uh, meditations for the season of Lent. And in our first program, we looked at the really big question, why? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did it have to be a particular kind of death, too? In the second program, we looked at the curse of the cross. Not only did the Old Testament say that if you were hung on a tree, you were dying in a cursed way, Jesus also took on the larger curse of evil that went back to the Garden of Eden. And
1: you also noted... That because sin was a big and serious problem, it had to be addressed in a big and serious way. You can't just sweep it under the rug and act like nothing happened. You can't just, God can't just overlook it. It needs to be addressed because of his holy and just character. And he did that through Jesus on the cross.
0: So Jesus died to save us from our sins. And uh, we're looking at those different angles or aspects of the cross of Jesus in this series, but not just. For idle curiosity, right? Not just for uh, biblical theology or academic sake, but we're doing it to see how it's connected to our lives and to the salvation that we still enjoy today, so we will always be in this series looking for those connections to our lives today. But today we're thinking about shame, the shame aspect of the cross. And Darrell, we can begin by thinking about uh, the uncomfortable topic to a degree. Why did the Roman Empire crucify people in the first place? The Roman Empire was looking to make this a spectacle. They were looking
1: to make sure that they made a statement. Mm-hmm. And so they would publicly put this cross and crucifixion out to embarrass the person that it, that did the crime and to make a statement to the people. When they looked at it, they knew, oh, you don't want to end up like this guy.
0: Exactly, And of course, all in history, there have been different ways to execute people, uh, even in the Bible time, Old Testament time, stoning someone to death. That was a public event and usually with public participation, literally. Yeah. But uh, there's also been uh, public spectacles of hangings or death by guillotine. After guns were invented, we had fire. Hiring squads. Today, you know, most executions happen beyond the public eye. There was the electric chair for a while, but today it's basically all lethal injection, which the public doesn't see. So there have been executions. You know, people used to gather in the town square to watch somebody be hanged, and that was kind of rather, rather grim and gruesome, right? But even those public ones weren't meant to be what you were just saying, Daryl, which is very interesting. This was like a public warning, from the Roman Empire, right? Yeah, it was,
1: and, and, and interestingly enough, in the last chapter of the Book of Romans, it says that you're supposed to submit to the authorities because they have a sword, mm. and that sword is what they have the authority to do, capital punishment, to do exact punishment to people who do things. And the Romans, they specifically used this spectacle, and they wanted to make sure that you don't want to end up like this guy, you don't want to find your way in this so it kind of deterred any crime that would happen from people who didn't want to end up that way and it was a humiliating way to be killed and a humiliating
0: way to die it was almost likely use it like a advertising billboard along a highway today right yeah. behave or you'll end up here all right behave or else so the cross was meant to inspire dread and dread, in turn, was supposed to inspire obedience. You obey the CZ, you toe the line, you follow the rules, or else. So the public humiliation of a crucifixion was sort of the cherry on top. Death had yeah, it happened. It was a slow, terrible, agonizing death, too. It was barbaric in almost every way. But death was almost an afterthought. <laughs> the main thing was the spectacle and the public warning that the citizenry would get through it. But, of course, you know, Daryl, though people did... Passed by crosses, and we even see this in Jesus. They they hurled insults. Sometimes they hurled objects, right? right? People saw it, but probably a lot of people averted their eyes. It was just too shameful to look at that naked man, and they were hoisted up naked on the cross. It was too shameful to even look at
1: actually in Genesis where Noah's children were rebuked for looking at their father's nakedness. So nakedness is seen as shameful after the fall, especially in a situation like this where the people are being crucified and sweet people would avert their eyes as a sign of respect or they just felt like this is too embarrassing to look at. And we have a passage in Isaiah 53 that talks about that. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?
0: So the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, an arrow pointed straight toward Jesus. And toward the end of his life, certainly, people hide their faces. Now, we don't think Jesus was an ugly human being, but he certainly was despised and rejected even in his life and ministry. The religious authorities rejected his teaching. His own disciples misunderstood him half the time. Abandoned him at the end, you know uh, to a person they abandoned him So there was a sense in which this is Jesus. He is somebody who knew shame and the feeling of being shamed even by his own family Remember the oh, yeah. passage where his mother and brothers show up and they want to Trundle him off home because they think he's off his rocker. He's out of his mind. He's crazy We gotta we gotta hide him. We gotta hide him. You know, this is embarrassing for the whole family I mean, nobody can shame you like your mother, right? So Jesus knew shame uh, in his whole life. So
1: I think it's important, just like you just said, Scott, that his suffering for Jesus didn't start at the crucifixion. Suffering for Jesus oh. actually went through his entire upbringing. And there's a time where he's teaching and they say, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are out here. It's like they're trying to pull him off the stage, so exactly. to speak, because they're like, man, what is he talking about, his teachings? He He's being despised and rejected throughout his life. And it's really crazy how Some people think that's only at the cross, but Jesus is well acquainted with having people turn their faces away from him, turn their backs and walk away from him, even
0: deny him. He's been through that. But it certainly reached its pinnacle. All of that combined, everything you were just talking about, Daryl, his whole lifelong climaxed on that shameful cross. And as we said a minute ago, you know, the Roman Empire crosses, the very sight of a cross was supposed to inspire dread and fear. We've noted this before in uh, Groundwork episodes. Today, the cross is such a common place. We see it on church signs, steeples, bulletin covers, book covers, jewelry, earrings, necklaces. Uh, if the people of the Roman Empire could see how we wear a cross or decoration today, they'd, they'd gasp because for them, uh, you didn't want to see a cross if you didn't have to. It was such a shameful thing. Seeing a cross would make you shiver. But we said in the first program, Daryl, that Jesus had to die a shameful death like that. He couldn't die of food poisoning or of a stroke. It had to be a shameful death. Why? Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. We're
1: glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. I'm Daryl Delaney with
0: Scott Jose, and you're listening to Groundwork. And we're talking about the shame of the cross in this third part of a seven-part series on the cross of Jesus, Daryl. We've wondered why did Jesus have to die in a shameful way? Well, let's go right to a passage that deals with it. Philippians chapter 2, a familiar verse that goes like this, starting in verse 5.
1: recognize that this is a song. This is a hymn they were singing in the early church. And you can see the steps down from glory, from their very nature of God, equality of God, making himself nothing, becoming a servant, made a human likeness, humbling himself, being obedient to death, even death on the cross. It's like the cross is lower than low. It's lower than death. It's lower than the most humiliating, and embarrassing thing that could happen. And Christ willingly took up that position for our sake.
0: It's like watching a plane crash almost. You know, here's a plane flying at 35,000 feet, something that goes terribly wrong, and it goes down, 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 until finally it explodes in a fireball on the ground. That's what Philippians 2 is. He is God, uh, the Son of God who became Jesus. He is God. But he didn't want to hang on to that equality. He willingly gave it up and just kind of took this downward spiral all the way to not just death, but Paul uses the cross as an exclamation point, or the song does, that it wasn't just any old death. It was death on a cross. And that is very, very important.
1: And it's so important that they put it in the context of worship. Hmm. So everyone who's singing this, whether they knew how to read the scriptures or even knew what was going on, if they're new Christians, or even if they've been worshiping for years. They understood that the humiliation of Christ on the cross is exactly why we're here. This is why we get to sing, because the next part of this is the exaltation. And that is actually our story that we get to enjoy because of Christ's work for us. But to have this part as the actually apex point, the chiasm, the cross part, the main focus is really exciting for us to remember. And for these churches, they ended up singing these songs to remember.
0: Yeah, interesting. This is one of the first songs they ever wrote, and they went right to the cross. Isn't that interesting? The early church recognized already what was saving about Jesus' particular form of death. He emptied himself. That's the the, the key verse here in verse 7. Some verses say he made himself nothing, but it's really the the Greek word kenoo, from which there's a whole branch of theology, uh, Darrell, called kenosis theology, as you know. Uh, So he emptied himself, made nothing. C.S. Lewis once colorfully put it this way, if you want to get the idea of what it must be like to be the son of God to wake up one day as a human baby with a diaper on and a manger, just imagine how you'd feel if you wake up some morning and you've become a garden slug. A rather uh, vivid image, I would say, <laughs> for Mr. Lewis, but I think he's probably right. He humbled himself. He had to endure shame, but why? Uh, Darrell, it goes all the way back to the beginning of the biblical story.
1: Well, let's look at it in Genesis. It's just this line from Genesis before the fall. It says, and "'Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame.'" we kind of glaze over. We heard it a lot of times, I think, yep. but the no shame is more than just a physical nakedness, even though that is part of it. The no shame means I look at you in the eye. You look at me in the eye. We are intimate into me, see intimacy. We get to trust each other. We get to fully disclose everything. And that is what we have before the fall. But then when the fall comes in and then we become shamed of who we are. Now we have reasons to hide because of sin. But when
0: there was no sin there was no need to hide exactly and we do we do get we we get hung up on the physical nakedness and you know uh, you get all these paintings and pictures and sunday school illustrations of conveniently placed palm fronds and uh, (laughs) uh, hibiscus flowers but that really wasn't the key thing right you're right they had no hidden agenda Exactly. I mean, they they could be transparent to each other. They could be transparent to God. So what's the first thing that changed after they messed up? Well, here's again, here's some Genesis 3. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, "Where are you?" And he answered i heard you in the garden and i was afraid because i was naked so i hid again the physical nudity isn't the key here It's what he's trying to hide in his heart.
1: Exactly. So there was an intimate connection. The word no in Hebrew, it's really about having an intimate connection with the relationship with someone. It says Adam and Eve knew each other and they had children. So that's a physical connection. But they had a spiritual connection with God before the fall. And so when they sinned, they broke that connection. And now they find a reason to be ashamed because they have literally
0: broken the one law that God gave them. That's right. And so now uh, God's presence, which had been welcoming, is a threat. They hid because they had something to hide, right? Makes sense if you read it that way. I mean, so, you know, we find out they eat the apple, the forbidden fruit, right? And they realize they're naked. Well, if you've never had clothing before of any kind, how do you all of a sudden realize you're naked, right? It's not like Adam could say to Eve, oh, dear, you're out in public. Put on your bathrobe at least. She didn't have a bathrobe. Now, it wasn't the physical nakedness, or if it was, it was just a sign of the Spiritual nakedness. They didn't need just fig leaves to hide their private parts. They needed something to hide their dirty hearts now.
1: Yeah. And so that's where the shame comes in, Scott, because it's like, I'm sorry for what I did. But I'm also sorry for who I am. So shame actually, I believe, goes against the image of God that he made us in because we were created to have no shame. We were created to be fully open, fully transparent. But when sin entered into this world as a foreign ingredient, a contaminant, then we couldn't be proud of who we were anymore. And so we try to hide it with figurative fig leaves with achievements, with status, with riches, with education, with other things we try to achieve for ourselves. We still try to cover the shame, but
0: we can't wash it away. We can't ignore it. That's why we need the Lord. To have no shame, to have no reason to avert our eyes or look down at our feet or shuffle our feet in the ground like we do when we're embarrassed and in shame. That's how God made us. Feeling ashamed and humiliated is what we did to ourselves in sin. And so to set the cosmos right again, uh, the Son of God had to be humble enough to enter our shame on something like the cross on Golgotha. So the saving act fit the original crime. But as we said at the beginning of the program, Daryl, what does that mean for us today? Well, stay tuned because we're going to think about that in just a moment. What does it look like to honor and serve God in your marriage and family? Visit FamilyFire.com to discover how you can better live out your faith in the context of your relationships. At FamilyFire.com, you'll find articles and devotions curated to encourage you to stoke the Holy Spirit's flame in your home. You'll also find an online community that can help you explore what it means to follow the Holy Spirit's lead in your family as a spouse, parent, or even an in-law. Join the community and be encouraged at FamilyFire.com.
1: You're listening to Groundwork where we're digging into scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney.
0: And I'm Scott Jose. And Daryl, as we close this program on the shame of the cross, let's put two Bible verses in front of ourselves and go from there. consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart.
1: And let's couple that with the new Testament verse from first Peter chapter two, where there's actually parallels as well. As you come to him,
0: So there is an extremely important line there uh, that Peter is quoting uh, from the Old Testament, I think, and Paul will quote it elsewhere as well. Here's what Peter's saying. Because Jesus endured the shame of the cross, we will never be put to shame when we put our trust in Christ alone. And that's an amazing message. And it really should be a cause of uh, ongoing celebration, right, in our lives as disciples.
1: Yes, so it's interesting how... In Hebrews 12, it says that Christ scorned shame. Hmm. It's like he shamed shame. By taking on the very thing that was shameful and turning it into a way of salvation for us, it was a beautiful thing. And those who trust in him, like first Peter says, will never be put to shame. That's a promise, that's something that we can hold on to, that we could actually know that we have that promise that we will never be put to shame no matter what happens in our lives.
0: And, you know, there's probably not a person listening to this program, Daryl, including the two uh, men at the microphones here, uh, who who do not have firsthand experiences with and firsthand memories of experiences with feelings of shame. Yeah, sometimes it might be about our physical bodies. Uh, You know, we don't like other people seeing us naked for all kinds of reasons. It's even uncomfortable at the doctor's office when you have to do that. But it's spiritual, mental shame that we all know the best and experience the most often it's those people in our lives that we can no longer look straight in the eye when we run into them. It's even the Genesis 3-like sense of not being able, as it were, to look God straight in the eye. That's the kind of shame we know really well. I've
1: experienced this shame in my own life, especially when, I break the rules, like the God. we said in the other program that God has put the law in our hearts, we know right from wrong. And whenever we break that code, we do feel the sense of shame, like there's something that has broken in us and we need to repent, we need to have that restored. And so it's important for us to know that that shame is real to not ignore it, to not escape it and to not medicate it, but then God has provided a way to deal with that shame and enter Christ and his salvation.
0: You know, in the uh, Lord of the Rings uh, novel by J.R.R. R. Tolkien, but also in the Peter Jackson uh, movie, the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, we've got this fellowship, this group of hobbits, men, a dwarf, an elf, a wizard, and they all come before this semi-divine elf queen named Galadriel, and she's very wise and penetrating. She, she's almost semi-divine. Anyway, there's a man in this group named Boromir who has a terrible secret in his heart. He wants to steal the ring of power from the Frodo, the hobbit, who's entrusted to destroy it, right? So he's got this dark secret in his heart. Well, Galadriel looks at all of them, and they all look back at her with wonder and amazement and awe because she's so beautiful and so But when she looks at Boromir, he shudders, and he looks away. He cannot hold her gaze because he knows, she knows what's in his heart. That's a terrible feeling, right? It's a terrible feeling. And if you had to worry that you would feel that way one day in front of God— That would be a source of ongoing worry. He can see right through me. And if all I have is what I've done, then I can't look God in the eye, and I might be going to hell for all I know.
1: When you were talking about these things, Scott, there's so many echoes I see in Scripture. Um, In the Old Testament, in Psalm 51, when David's confessing his sin, he says, you know, when I sit, when I rise, you see my thoughts from afar. And then when Jesus predicts that Peter will will Mm. betray him, and then in one gospel, he looks at him when right after right, he does yeah. it. And, and then Judas, he's looking him right in the face and he's dipping the bread and he says, whatever you got to do, go ahead and do it. I know what you're going to do. And so God in his divine omniscience and knowledge, he can see and know that we are ashamed of what we're doing. And he doesn't call us out. But the Holy Spirit convicts us, and the good news is we don't have to live in that shame.
0: Jesus took it for us. When I was a seminary intern at a church, it was the very first time I'd ever walked with a man through his own journey uh, with cancer. And it was clear he was going to die one day soon, and I can still—I can remember Daryl so vividly. He was sitting in his living room, just the two of us, and he had this idea that a lot of us have, that on the last day of the judgment, uh, God was going to show the movie of his life to the whole world everything he had ever done is going to be up on this big screen. And he looked at me and said, Scott, how will I ever endure the shame of all that? Because there's stuff I've done, you know, I'm ashamed. I remember vividly what he said. I can't remember what I said. Here's what I hope I said. No, you won't have to do that. You know, as Peter said, we will never be put to shame when we put our hope in Christ alone, because Jesus endured the shame of the cross. He took all the shame of our sin on himself, We don't have to have that worry that we're not gonna be able to meet Jesus' gaze when he looks at us at the last day. He took care of that.
1: And what's beautiful about that, Scott, is that even though in the Old Testament and sometimes in our own lives, we try to cover ourselves figuratively, um, but we realize that when we trust God and he becomes our forgiveness, we receive his spiritual covering. Hmm. And there's a scripture about that in Romans 10. It says that anyone who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. And we can say in response to that, thanks be to
0: God again and again. Amen. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Scott Jose and Daryl Delaney. Please join us again next time as we study the scriptures to help us understand the paradox of the cross. Connect with us at our website, groundworkonline.com. Share what Groundwork means to you or give us suggestions for what you would like to hear discussed next on Groundwork.
1: Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dot Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacob.